Welcome back to this show. Um, what, Renaissance. Praise be to God. Ray. Welcome back to the Renaissance. Yes. Praise yes. be. May the Lord open. Um, <clears throat> episode 22. And this is the show that everyone's been waiting for, right. Ray. Um, Why? Because we, we're, we're actually going to get into... The Renaissance in this show. I don't know. I think we need um, another ten or twelve uh, warm-ups, but that's fine. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. I don't want to stand in the way of progress. After all the shit, after all the shit, Tony Kynaston Tony. gave us when we were in Europe, yeah. because we we did the pre-Renaissance right. uh, uh, shows. Yeah, I decided we had to get into it just to shut him the <laughs> fuck up. <laughs> it's worth it. You know, I was gonna I was gonna take a swing at him. On the trip, but he's too tall. Though you, would, you wouldn't reach. have been able to reach him exactly. So I let yeah, you go. need to get up on a. <clears throat> so speak before we get into the Renaissance part of the Renaissance. <laughs> um, we have been to Florence. Was that your first trip to yep. Florence? Yes, it was freaking awesome. Yes, it was. Well, tell let's let's talk a little bit about it. Tell tell the folks what you thought uh, of uh, Firenze. Uh, it, it was it was definitely amazing. And when you read that um, the guilds and rich families spent a ton of money beautifying their city, there was a lot of pride in the city. Those are just words on a page. And when you're there. And you sense it and you can see it and you can't turn one way or the other without seeing some kind of artistic work and the amount of gold and just, just the sheer ton tonnage of uh, resources and money that went into it. These people were very proud of, uh, of what they had and all the city-states were, but Florence really took it up a notch. And I think we were saying this um, soon afterward, but again, to see a picture of David to see video of David, no matter what, when you were standing there looking at him and all his... You're talking about David... You're talking about David Shaffy, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Shaffy came yeah. with us yeah. on the trip. David yeah. Shaffy is the king of one-liners. Don't let anybody tell you different. This guy can zip something out and have you choking on your limoncello. But the other David, the other the lesser-known David, uh, the statue. Um, the white The white David. The white David. <laughs> Big white yeah, David. No, that, I just stood, stood there and just stared... At all of them, not just certain parts, but that was absolutely magical. What did, what was your impression of uh, of Florence? It was my uh, second time to Florence. The first was about fourteen years ago, wow. and um, yeah, look, it, it's an amazing. It, it was it was my favorite place. You know, mm-hmm. um, out of everywhere that we went on the trip, um, you know, Ajaxio. I loved it's got a special place in my heart because that's where I met Chrissy um, and she first uh, went down on me. Uh, So, you know, it's, it's got a special place in my heart, uh, Ajaxio, but, um, and I love, I love, I love the, I love the pace of Ajaxio. It's very laid back. Yeah. But Florence was my favorite, uh, my favorite uh, place that we went to on the trip. Just because of this, I think the thing about Florence is uh, for 400 years, um, more five six hundred years, they have thought the people of Florence have thought of themselves as the city of uh, art, mm-hmm. the city of culture, the city of architecture and painting and the uh, sculpture and 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 uh, I don't know love and yeah. and high highbrow attitudes towards um, art. And and there's something about a city that has got that amount of time um, mm. with that mindset right. 
that, that they that they have fully embraced and embodied their position in history as uh, a place of beauty. Yeah. You know, a place that that created um, all of this beauty deliberately uh, and helped usher in the Renaissance. So it's I don't know, it's just this vibe in the place where you get a sense, I got a sense that the people who live there, the locals, really do feel that it's the city of beauty. And um, and they were warm, they were friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, particularly we'd come from France where um, I love the French, uh, uh, but the people uh, are a little bit kind of, eh, you know, yeah. they're a little bit like, little uh, fuck you, we're the French. <laughs> yeah, fuck you, we're French. Like, you not. know, uh, to, to tourists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I get that. Right. If I was French, I would feel that way. Like, fuck you, we're French. We don't... We don't uh, we don't need you. Well, we do need you because yeah. uh, tourism's big, but we don't like the fact that yeah. we need your tourist dollars. So just we're just gonna be like, yeah, fuck yeah. you, we're French. Um, you, we, then we got to Florence, and the people were like, Bellissimo, <laughs> hey, you come to Florence, yeah. hey, it's so beautiful. Come and have a look at the Duomo. Oh, it's so beautiful. <clears throat> and our our um, the tour guides that we had there were just fantastic mm-hmm. and they were warm and friendly and funny. So were the tour guides we had in, in Paris, I have to say, but um, who weren't French, funnily enough. Um, <clears throat> but it was great. Uh, um, I remember uh, like on our first day uh, um, walking, you're just walking down a street and you turn a corner and, um, you know, the Duomo right. is there Boom. in front of you exactly. with that, that cupola. And then you're like, oh, oh, oh hello. Wow. <laughs> Didn't see you. Uh, one, of, yeah. one, of, one of the masterpieces of, uh, of, of human civilization. It's just there. It's yeah. just in the street. Right you just you go, oh, okay. You turn a corner and it's there. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. And, and, of course, so seeing that again um, – Seeing Michelangelo's David again, going to the Uffizi and seeing oh, um, you know the, yeah. the the Da Vinci's and the um, Botticelli's and all this kind of stuff. It was yeah, great. yeah it was astounding. I have to say that the tour guide, and I think you commented on this uh, as well. The tour guide won me over right away when he mentioned or he he compared the church to the mafia. So right away, I we we knew we were with the right tour guide and his attitude about uh, their power and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, I was like, well, did like, he really just say that? What can I you can you say that? <laughs> he said it two <laughs> yeah. or three times. I'm like, okay, I I think we're with the right guy. But um, now, because our, yeah. our tour guide in Paris, um, when we, she was talking about our tour guide of the Louvre, when she was talking about um, how the Louvre collection under Napoleon went from 500 pieces to over 5,000 <laughs> pieces, and she said he was uh, Napoleon was a great art collector. And I said, you mean he was a great thief? And she goes, oh, I can't say that. <laughs> You I can't can, say that, right. but you can say right. that, but I can't say yeah. that. Yeah. And then the, the, we get to Florence, it goes, hey, the church <laughs> is a mafia. You know? They're well like, trusted. Right, yeah. right uh, but yeah. full disclosure, and uh, we, we um, not to be too negative, but I don't think we were too impressed with, was it the gardens or that, that open area, the park? I'm not sure what its name was, but we're like, yeah, okay, yeah, this is okay. But um, the Baboli Gardens? Yeah, Baboli, yeah, yeah. It was okay. It, yeah, it, no, it was okay. The Baboli Gardens, um, you know, it was just really dry, really hot. Yeah, all um, But we did – I did see, uh, you know, the famous statue of you naked riding a turtle, <laughs> well, which was really the only reason I wanted to go to the Baboli I, Gardens. I wanted you to be Never, surprised. I knew it was there. Um, I'd been commissioned. Of but, course. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I'd never been to the Baboli Gardens before. I wanted to go just to see do, that statue. Do you know the name of the turtle that I was riding? Barry? Well, close. Eugene. Um, it just felt right when I when I first saw and laid eyes on it. Anyway, but uh, yeah, it was it was it was an awesome statue. And we're not even going to go into you taking pictures of that woman who then suddenly thought she was on Vanity Fair. We're not even going to go anywhere near that. Yeah, yeah, she's American, of course. <laughs> uh, okay, so anyway, let's get into the show. Um, uh, if you haven't been to Florence, though, folks, yes. we highly recommend it. Yes. Um, don't go with us though, because no. we're not. We're we're done taking people anywhere. We're not we're not taking anyone ever, anywhere again. Especially oh, Tony. It's, oh my god! It's <laughs> it's hard work. Hard work touring Europe with a group of strangers. Nice people with nice, lovely people. Yeah. It's just you know you're in everyone's pocket. You're in each other's pocket for right. three weeks. Yeah. You're like really it's is. Like, it's I'm not, sick of your face. No one likes right. that. It, everyone got. And, but I thought everyone kept their. Um, Kept their happy faces on, did a good job, even though I'm sure everyone was sick of everyone else. Everyone did a pretty good job of uh, hiding it, to, to the most part. Some people, not as good as others. Do you know, but, do you know what uh, got us through? You know what got us through? The rooftop uh, dinners, I would say. Especially, the rooftops. Yeah, especially yeah. in Florence. That was, the, that was the best. I mean, oh, you're, yeah. Yeah, you're looking at the Acropolis in yeah. uh, Athens, but to see the Duomo right there, it was just magical. Yeah, every night up on the roof Sunset. with a... View of the Duomo lit up, sunset, dinner, cigars. Yeah. Um, it was great. Yeah. So I want to pick up our story, Ray. Yeah. In the year 1302. So in our last episodes, episodes 2021, we were talking about the fall of Rome. Right. Um, and how it all sort of came crashing down. That which Julius and Augustus built uh-huh. came crashing down in the 500s. Yeah. Through a variety of things, bit of bit of bit of plague, a uh, <laughs> bit of Germans, bit of Christians, um, it all came crashing down. And that plague is not going wanna, anywhere. Yeah, no, no, it's not. But in 1302, I, I want to tell the story uh, of a man called Pietro di Parenzo di Garzo. All right, uh, or PPG, as his people <laughs> knew him. Rap name PPG. What up, bro? <laughs> Um, well, we actually want to talk about his son, but uh, we'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there. But but to get there, I think we, we need to duck in and out of the 800 years we're skipping. All right. Um, and, and now Tony's rolling his eyes going, I knew, <laughs> I, I knew you couldn't just fucking just tell the... <clears throat> hang in there, 20, just 20 episodes, I promise, and then we'll get to... <laughs> so, Pietro di Parenzo di Garzo, mm-hmm. PPG, uh, was a notary... In Florence, tell people what a notary is, Ray. A notary is someone who, um, and this goes back to uh, ancient Rome, uh, they work with the courts, they record things, they have certain forms, they write down uh, judgments uh, that the Senate or certain law courts give, a very important position, um, and so they work closely with the law, and um and th- yeah, like I said, this goes back to ancient Rome. So by this time, this is a very established thing. It's a very uh, important thing. And these guys get paid a decent amount of money. So if you are a notary, you do get uh, you get you get paid pretty well. And the person that you're speaking about and his father were a notary. So th- so this is in this line, uh, this family's line for a couple of generations. Basically, a contract lawyer is how I think of a notary. Yeah, right. Someone who deals with the paperwork. Yeah. Um. Now, at some point in 1302, PPG was falsely charged with faking some documents, Son and it came down to a 
bit of a political battle. He belonged to a political party called the White Guelphs. Mm-hmm. Um, their, their most famous member was Dante Alighieri, um, who we're not going to talk about in this episode. Anyway, Dante is kind of pre-Renaissance. I mean, right. a major figure in, in, in Western uh, literary History, but uh, he's a little bit pre-Renaissance, so we're not going to cover him in detail today. And he is a friend of this person that you are speaking of. Yeah, well, in Florence, and it's a a small town, relatively small town. These people knew each other. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, Mm -hmm. because this is going to help fill in some of the gaps about the political environment in, well, not just in Florence and Italy, but sort of in Europe at the time. Right. Uh, and particularly as we go forwards um, with the series and talking about Florence, uh, we're going to be talking a lot about the politics. You know, mm-hmm. it's going to help explain when, when we get to people like the Medici's and this kind of stuff. It's good to know a little bit about the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the kind of this goes back to the 12th century and Frederick Barbarossa. Yeah. Barbarossa, Ray. That sounds familiar. I think we've talked about Barbarossa before. On occasion. Where have people heard Barbarossa before, Ray? I know they've heard it on my show, but um, yeah. I'm not sure which exactly which show you're referring to. Well, uh, our Cold War Cold show. War, and Operation War Barbarossa. Show. Yeah, which was, to remind people? The Nazi Germany invasion... Um, and supposed to be relatively quick war with the USSR. That's right. Named after this guy, yes. Frederick Barbarossa. That'd be. Um, now, Barbarossa was elected King of Germany at Frankfurt uh, on the 4th of March, 1152. Okay. He was crowned uh, the King of Italy in 1155, and the Roman Emperor by Pope Adrian the Fourth in 1155, in Rome. Now, after the fall of the Western Roman Empire uh, in sort of 480, um, when, as we talked about in one of our earlier episodes, when Julius Nepos was deposed by Orestes, Orestes' development <laughs> in 475, right. um, the, the title of emperor lay dormant for uh, 300 and something years. Wow. Wasn't until Charlemagne, Charles the Great, Charles Magnus, whatever you want to call him, was crowned emperor the of the Romans uh-huh. by Pope Leo the Third in eight hundred. Then his successors called themselves emperors up until the death of Berengar the First of Italy in nine twenty four. Then there was no emperors for about forty years, and then uh, the German Otto the Great who, despite being a German, was the great, 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 great grandson right. of Charlemagne. Wow. Was um, uh, crowned the emperor in uh, 962 by Pope John Twelfth. The actual Holy Roman Empire uh, is usually considered to have begun with either Charlemagne or, or Otto the Great. Depends on who you talk to. Some historians say it was Charlemagne. Some say it was Otto. Uh, but Otto was definitely the Holy Roman Emperor um, because he defeated the pagan Magyars 
uh, and was declared the saviour of Christendom, oh. something that I've been called uh, <laughs> well, many times. Close. But uh, <laughs> um, So he, the Magyars were Hungarians and he uh, defeated them and they were like, we're going to call you holy. <laughs> You're the holy Roman emperor. So from that point on, um, the Holy Roman Emperor is perceived to have the divine right to rule uh, the Roman Catholics in Europe. Makes sense. But we, we've now got a Pope crowning emperors. Mm. It didn't happen back in Augustus's day. Right. It did, not even the Pontifex Maximus in that day could crown an emperor, mostly because the Pontifex Maximus was <laughs> the emperor. He, they could have done a Napoleon. Right. And we saw the Napoleon coronation painting, one one copy of it, anyway, when we were in the Louvre. Did you like that? I wasn't in the Louvre. I was in Normandy. Oh, that's yeah. right. You didn't come to the no, Louvre. I, I regret yeah, okay. that, but uh, you and I can do it later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so um, why is the Pope now crowning emperors at this juncture, Ray? You got any thoughts on that? Well... I'm guessing he is the representative of God of everything on the planet. So does that give him the right or authority to do so? I mean, is he the higher power bestowing it on this this uh, secular position? Yeah, but when did the popes get the job of all that authority to crown emperors? I do not know. Hmm. Well, luckily I do. So... This goes back to an agreement between the Frankish kings mm. uh, and the popes. The Frankish kings um, promised to defend the popes from their enemies right. in return for the continued support of the pope. And this caused a lot of problems over the centuries, but it goes back to Charlemagne's father, Pepin the Short. <laughs> Um, somebody that um, I know you've got a lot of affinity with. Um, uh, um, Pepin the Short, right. he defended the papacy. This is like the late 700s. Defended the papacy against the Lombards. Remember mm-hmm. we talked about the Lombards in our last episode. They came oh, yeah. in and basically took over most of Italy um, uh, after the sort of the war between the, the Byzantines and right. the, the Visigoths or the Ostrogoths, um, and, and, and the Byzantine Empire was going to try and take back all of Italy again, yeah. but in the process they weakened themselves and then the Lombards come in and said, Thank thanks you. very much, we'll have yep. that. <laughs> and they, they held that for um, a couple of hundred years. So Pepin's, uh, you know, the, uh, after the Lombards, sorry, took control of Italy, um, there were there were areas that they didn't have control of, uh, which one of those was around Rome itself, which the the Byzantines sort of technically still controlled, but they couldn't really get there to defend them because to get there to defend them, they would have to travel through Lombard territory. Mm. Pepin the Short, who was over in uh, France, um, he he agreed to defend them. He'd come in from the other way, and. Um, he uh, issued at some point what's known as the Donation of Pepin, where he actually granted the land around Rome mm-hmm. to the popes in perpetuity as their own little fiefdom. Wow. So they, they technically became 
kings in their own right mm-hmm. um, in the late 700s. He was like, you know what? Just, just you can have this. Yeah. You back me. I'll back you. Uh, and I will give you all of this land. You're now king of your own little territory. You can have an army. You can make the laws. Oh. You can do everything you want. So the popes became kings. They not just had. They didn't just have spiritual authority. They had temporal authority. And this this became known as the papal states, mm-hmm. the land that they controlled up until this very day. We yeah. went to. The Vatican, and as most people, I'm sure, probably know, the Vatican is an independent uh, mm-hmm. nation. So it's in Italy, uh, but it's its independent uh, nation, and the Pope is the king of uh, nice. he's the king of the Vatican, Vatican City. Nice. Uh, he was left with that after the unification of Italy. Um, That's in only the fair. late 1800s. Yeah, yeah. Really? Fuck I the Pope. I I anyway. <laughs> no. Uh, um, so in 754, Pope Stephen II mm-hmm. crossed the Alps, uh, went over to France, um, and anointed Pepin king. Pepin had worked for the uh, previous rulers of France, the Merovingians, Clovis, and these sorts of guys. Um, uh, but but Pope Stephen the uh, Stephen Stephen II went over, anointed Pepin king. Which was the the sort of got rid of the old Merovingian royal line and introduced the Carolingian mm. royal line because one of one of uh, Pepin's uh, ancestors was uh, uh, Carol. So um, Charles Charles Martel, I think his name was. So this is where the Carolingian dynasty comes from. Right. I just so have in to return- ask, I'm sorry. I have to ask real quick. If you were made pope. Would you pick the name Stephen? I'm just yeah. Well, it's it's named after Saint Stephen. That's that that doesn't help. I'm sorry, but that's okay. Please continue. You don't know about Saint. How long were you a fucking Catholic for? Um, obviously not long enough. Um, no, just Stephen. It isn't very sexy. It's not very popish. I don't know. I just uh, you know I was expecting something a little bit better, but that's. <clears throat> Saint Stephen uh-huh. Ray, yeah, uh, is the first martyr of Christianity according to oh, tradition. Okay, according to the Bible, no, uh-huh. I don't know if you've ever heard of a little book called the Bible, Ray. Uh, in Acts of the Apostles, he was right. a deacon in the early church who pissed off the Jews. Right. Um, he was walking around going, Jesus is the Messiah. And they were like, shut the fuck up. And he's like, nah, he's the Messiah. Make me. Make me. Um, he was accused of blasphemy and was stoned to death. Um, and while they were stoning him to death, the guy who was looking after their uh, jackets, they had a cloakroom. <laughs> right. The, the, according to the Bible, the guy who was in charge of the cloakroom was right. a little guy called Saul of Tarsus, oh. later known as Saint Paul the Apostle. Right. He was like, yeah, stone that bitch, <laughs> stone, stone and road. I'll make sure no one steals your coats. <laughs> and, That'd be um, my job. Anyways, okay, you know what? So I retract, and a so bit that's of an Saint, apology. Saint Stephanos, okay. Saint Stephen's. Anywho. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, in, in return for Pope, the Pope's support, 
uh, Pepin gave because the you know the 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 French were good Catholics at this juncture. Um, Pepin gave Pope lands in Italy, and they they did this deal. So Pope Stephen slash Stephen mm-hmm. uh, conferred on Pepin the title of Patricius Romanus, the father of the Romans. Ah. Nice. And then 46 years later, in 800, Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne Roman Emperor. It hadn't been used for three, four, three, three and a hundred, three and a bit hundred years. They right. resurrected the title of Roman Emperor. Mm. But the precise term Holy Roman Empire wasn't actually used until the 13th century. Wow. So anyway, back to Bar 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 Barossa. <laughs> now before before Freddie Freddie B was uh, made the emperor, he was the Duke of Swabia. Right. Um, they they used to do a lot of um, DNA testing and genital right. uh, testing there. Sure. They go. We just need to just need Stand. to take a swab. Right. They go, shit, we're going to call this place Swabia, man. Every time you come here, they just want to take a swab. (laughs) He had a castle in Swabia called uh, Weiblingen. Sure. I'll take your word for it. Weiblingen, I think is how um, the Germans pronounce it. Weiblingen. And his supporters would cry that out in battle. Weiblingen! (laughs) (laughs) Everyone would be like... What? Did you just stub your toe? Vibrantion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's too long. I need something shorter. But continue. Well, uh, when that, when when his supporters uh, uh, translated that into Italian, it became Ghibellino. Ah, not don't ask close. me how Vibrantion <laughs> ends up as Ghibellino, but that's where it comes from. The, the Ghibellines, the Ghibellines were the supporters of uh, Frederick. Right. Um. Now, his opponents were from that uh, another uh, Dukes of Bavaria known as the House of Wealth. Right. His supporters would shout out, Wealth! <laughs> wealth! That's even worse. Fabligion! Wealth! Forever Fabligion. Wealth! And in Italy, they became the Guelphs. Yes. So when Barbarossa is trying to take control of Italy, which he did, he came in and he goes, I'm going to have that. Uh... His supporters were the Ghibellines. They tended to be the rural nobility, the, the mm. wealthy landowners. Their wealth came from agriculture, right. um, and they were supporting the the, the king. And then the Guelphs tended to be the the lawyers, the bankers, mm. the the businessmen, the merchants right. came from the city, oh. um, and they supported the pope. Pope backers. So you had yeah these two factions in Italy during the 12th, 13th centuries initially. You had the supporters, they wanted the French king to come in and take over everything, the, the wealthy landowners. Mm-hmm. And then you had the merchants who wanted the Pope to look after them, um, and they're the Guelphs. So the Ghibellines and the Guelphs. Which gets us back to PPG, Pietro right. di Parenzo di Garzo. Wow, okay. So, as you said before, um, he was a. Well, I said, you said, we both <laughs> said, um, he was a. He was a merchant. He also worked for the state as a notary, mm-hmm. as his father had before him, and I think his father before him. 
they were professional writers of contracts and, and wills and other sorts of legal documents. He's basically a lawyer, came from generations of notable lawyers or notable notaries. Right. Um, nice. He had that, that was on his business card. No. Um, <laughs> PPG, notable notary. And he belonged to this faction known as the White Guelph. So at this juncture, um, the Ghibellines had kind of been eradicated for the mm-hmm. time being. Right. And then the Guelphs started fighting amongst amongst each other. The White Jesus Guelphs Christ. and you had the Black Guelphs. Right. Um, the White Guelphs um, wanted to get rid of the Pope altogether. Mm-hmm. They go, you know what? The Pope was useful when we were fighting the king. Right. Now we got rid of the king. We, let's get oh, rid of the Pope too. Fuck gosh. it. We don't need him. The Black Guelphs thought of themselves as the church party. Right. Um, whereas the White Guelphs were sort of um, like all like proto-nationalists. Mm. They were secular nationalists. They were like, we don't need this Pope. What's the Pope ever done for us? <laughs> yeah. They, they, <laughs> they wrote a song. They wrote this song for the Pope. What's up, girl? He stood me up again. Again? Mm-hmm. Well, what's up with this guy? Do you really like him that much? Yes, honey, I love him. He is fine. He does a lot of nice things for me. I know he used to do nice stuff for you, but what has he done for you lately? Anyway, that's what they said to the Pope. Yeah. What have you done for me lately? Let's get rid of the Pope. Right. Makes sense. So this is the Black Guelphs. So the Black Guelphs mm-hmm. uh, accused PPG of <laughs> falsifying some legal document. Right. And um, he basically said, fuck you, it's a stitch-up. <laughs> well, what the- did he do next, Ray? Well... From what I was able to read, they're like, okay, this is the accusation. So you either pay a fine of 1,000 lira or, your choice, you can lose your right hand. I know what I would have picked because self-pleasuring is important to me. But anyway, so he refused to pay the fine, but he also refused to stand trial. So the court was left with nothing more than to take his property from him. So, well, yeah. he ran away too. Well, basically, yeah, that before too, yeah. all of yeah. this, yeah. And so they he whoop, got the f- got the fuck out of Dodge. Yes, and they took his property with, with his right hand. May I add, uh, they didn't take his no, right. No, he no, took he, his right he, hand. Yes, he ran away yeah. with his right with hand. his right hand, still attached. Yeah. I'm sorry, I should have been a little still. more clear. Mm. And he used it to give them the finger <laughs> as he was riding away. Um, now. He took his young wife with him. They fled to the town of Arezzo, mm-hmm. which is about 
80 kilometers, 50 miles southeast of Florence. I've been to Arezzo, not on this trip, but on a previous trip. Very lovely. Very lovely little part of the world. Cool. And it was there that Pietro's son, his first son, was born in 1304. Hmm. Now, Pietro had a nickname. It was Sir Petrarco. Sir just means, it's like Mr. Messer. It's like a, a title that... Yeah, it's a, it's like a um, title of respect that they would give to notable people mm-hmm. um, in uh, Florence in those days. So, Sir Petrarco, S E R Petrarco, is is how he is often referred to. And his son, of course, Ray was Francesco Patraca. And we know him by his, the anglicised version of his name, Petrarch. Right, the great. Florentine poet, although he never really lived in Florence, but he thought of himself as Florentine. We tend mm-hmm. to think of him as, as Florentine because mm-hmm. his father was Florentine, but got out of Florence just before Petrarch was born. Right. Often called Petrarch, that is, the father of humanism and the father of the Renaissance and wow. the first modern man. So we're going to spend the next couple of episodes exploring why Petrarch uh, is remembered as the father of all of these things. Now, a lot of you have written in uh, accusing us of being Renaissance men, and that's true, but he's the first. We take it from him. So uh, very proud to be a part of that lineage. But yeah, and and as we're going to see, this isn't something that is done willy-nilly or accidentally or he stumbles upon it. This guy is going to have a cause, a crusade, if you will, to try to change things. And, and I think we probably said this on a previous episode, the humanists were all about studying the classical, uh, the classic works of antiquity. They wanted to create a citizenry that was able to speak and write with eloquence and clarity so they could better engage in civic life of their respective city-state and to, uh, to help out, to help develop and take care of their cities. Uh, and they also wanted to persuade people to be virtuous and to take prudent action in their everyday lives, kind of like what our shows do. <laughs> so what is humanism, Ray? Uh, just as far as I know, it's just the uh, what I just said rather brilliantly, just the study of classical antiquity. We talked about the level of writing and supposedly the level of uh, patriotism, nationalism, if you will, during like Augustus's time that all kind of fades away after the Roman Empire falls. And these humanists want to return to a state of... Uh, of a better way of living, of focusing on their daily lives, of what is practical and pragmatic, and to be inspired and to take examples from um, the classical times of Rome. No, I don't think that's what humanism is at all. Okay, that's what I think it is. What do you think it is, jerk? Sorry, that wasn't very nice. I apologize. Wow, where did I'm that sorry. come from? I normally hit mute. No, I've been saying it for years, but I normally <laughs> hit mute. My finger slipped. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, you've been hitting the limoncello before you came on this this evening. <laughs> Something like that. No, humanism um, is the uh, putting a value on the human experience. Ah, I like that. Um, how to live in this life, live well in this life, as opposed to thinking about your immortal soul and what's going to happen to you when you die. So... During the 
Middle Ages, you know, mm-hmm. from the fall of classic uh, Rome, classical Rome through to the Renaissance. Um, by and large, I don't want to say everyone was like this because we know that's not true. We, you know, we know today that you know these these sort of ideas uh, of humanism that became prevalent in Italy, certainly for the first time uh, in the Renaissance. There had been smatterings of it right through the Middle Ages. There's something called the Carolingian Renaissance happened under uh, Charlemagne. Mm-hmm. There was the Ottonian Renaissance under Otto the Great. Um, of course, we know that the uh, the Muslims had an interest in classical learning and, and kept these books. So there was this continuation in different times and different parts of the world, bits and pieces. But but by and large, uh, under Catholicism for this thousand-odd years, where the majority of people put their time and energy, if they had the opportunity to think beyond scratching a living out of the dirt, was about what was going to happen to them when they died. It was the, the focus was on their immortal soul, how to be a good Christian, mm. how to make God love you. Uh, the, the church uh, uh, promoted this as how, where, where people should put their time and energy and, and their focus. And there, were, there was uh, a certain amount of classical study that went along with that. Aristotle was very big um, and, and the scholasticism, which was the way that they studied during those centuries, was built around sort of Aristotle's, some of his uh, writings and the idea of um, dialectics uh, between scholars trying to debate the nature of truth and and, uh, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to get closer to God. But the humanists were like, you know, what matters is um, what what the human experience is right now, how to live a good life, how to live a happy life, how to live a virtuous life. Um, and, and and they took some of this, as we'll see, um, from the writings, uh, some of which had already ex- they already knew about, some which they rediscovered, uh, particularly of people like Cicero and also you know, Plato and Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Um, some of Aristotle's stuff that had been ignored because it, it didn't really map towards your immortal soul. Uh, but it's about humanism is about the human experience. Yeah. Now, that's not to say, like, we, I think today uh, we tend to think of secular humanism as being people that uh, are, um, you know, your Richard Dawkins and your Sam Harris's and your Christopher Hitchens, um, anti religious. Uh, and anti-religion altogether, uh, these early humanists weren't that. As we'll Mm -hmm. see with Petrarch, he had a foot in both camps. These early humanists didn't just turn around overnight and go, (laughs) fuck the church and fuck God. We don't believe in that bullshit. Right. Um, Viva la reason (laughs) and logic. They, they They were still religious, yeah. but started to value uh, more than had previously been done the the, the humanist uh, side of things and a revival in some of the uh, focus on how to live a good life. Today, mm-hmm. let's not worry about what happens 100% when you die. But they, they, they did both. Right. For, for many centuries, 
um, you know, we see that uh, during the Renaissance, these people, and this includes the Medici's and, and all of these sorts of guys, uh, Michelangelo and Da Vinci, uh, all these names that we're going to explore, they were religious as well as being interested in the human experience and 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 uh, science and and uh, uh, rational thought and all of this kind of stuff. It wasn't a it wasn't a, a quick transition. It was a very slow transition over many many centuries before religion started to lose its grip on uh, the, the the major humanists. I think you make a good point because if it had been more abrupt, the church obviously would have come down on them just like they came down and everyone else for the last thousand years. But uh, as we're going to see, Petrarch is um, close friends with a lot of bishops, a lot of cardinals. He's going to be supported by them. He is going to have a general positive view of Christianity, certainly versus paganism. Uh, But you're right. I mean, because he started saying there's got to be more than just this, and he starts to redefine trying to be, because let's, let's be honest, Petrarch was vain, just like everyone else. So he's going to seek glory and he's going to seek like Alexander the Great to, to live in eternity or have his name to live forever. But he's going to do it a different way. It's not just about heaven. I'm going to try to become someone. I'm going to try to create something. And like you said, it's a gradual process. So he's still doing kowtowing, if you will, to the church. But he's also starting to think along different lines, as is others. But because it's gradual, they are not um, crushed by the church. And that's probably the only way it was going to happen. Well, yeah, but I don't want to give the impression that that's the reason they did it, because they weren't going to be crushed by the church. These people, I think, uh, Mm -hmm. were genuinely religious. They were genuine believers. Yeah. Products of their time, exactly. Um, but they started to gradually transition out of that, but it took centuries. Yeah. So uh, getting back to uh, Petrarch, he's also the person credited with first referring to the Middle Ages, the time that came before him as the Dark Ages, and the time right. that he lived in as the Dark Ages. He wrote uh, about the people who came before him, and he said, amidst the errors that shone Sorry, let me start that again. Amidst the errors, there shone forth men of genius. No less keen were their eyes, although they were surrounded by darkness and dense gloom. Mm. So um, the the term, uh, the Dark Ages, we actually get from Petrarch. Right. The, the age of darkness that had come before he talked about. And by, by the age of darkness, he meant... Um, you know when that when people had sort of forgotten about um, the human experience, or they turned away from it, and art and culture and and literacy and uh, all of these sorts of things. Yeah. Now, and just just to uh, note, um, if we're going to uh, continue on the timeline, even though he's born in Arezzo in 1304, he does spend his early childhood near Florence. I'm not sure how to say the town. Is this Incisa? I-N-C-I-S-A, Incisa. I'm not sure how to say it. but uh, I would have gone Incisa. Incisa, thank you. That's what I needed. That's why you're here. So he spent his early childhood in Incisa near Florence. Uh, But even so, when they do move, they do move to a Ghibelline town, Ghibelline area, so they have to be careful. And um, when uh, he gets older, the father is going to already determine that Petrarch is going to be a notary like he was, like his father was, like his grandfather was. So his, so his father, Sarah, has already got his life planned out for him. 
Yeah, and this moving around that Petrarch did early on, um, uh, and he for the rest of his life he travelled and lived in lots of different places, which have to say was unusual mm-hmm. uh, for that time. During that time, mostly people stayed where the fuck they were. You know, they they <laughs> right. they lived their entire lives where they were born and they yeah. died there. Petrarch didn't, and he actually wrote once. I am a citizen of no place. Everywhere I am a stranger. And, again, it's statements like that uh, which have led to him being called the first modern man mm-hmm. uh, because he didn't think of himself as a necessarily as an Italian or a Florentine or anything. He was like, hey, dude, wherever I lay my hat. That's right. That's my home. I'm a man of the world. By the look in your eye, I can tell you're gonna cry. Is it over me? If it is, save your tears. For I'm not worth it, you see. For I'm the type of boy who is always. Uh, let me it guess, song. Paul Young? No, Petrarch. Petrarch, that was... Uh... <laughs> yeah, Paul Young. That's a good one. How'd you know that, right? I know his voice from his couple of hits in the 80s. Uh, very distinctive voice, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Yeah, good, good call. Yeah. And, and I, I just want to, before we go on, just to give everyone some context, and I'll be doing this a lot in the next three shows. So the Ghibelline Arezzo has a long but up and down war with um, Guelph Florence. And just to let you know how it ends, and this is only one of many, many wars in Italy for the you know during all this time. In 1384, Arezzo falls permanently under the influence of Florence. Florence. So uh, Florence is very, they, they are very rich. They have a lot of money for art and things like that, but they also have a lot of money for war. And eventually they're going to take over Arezzo and, and be able to hold it for a very long time. But there's a lot of uh, strife and wars going on with all these city-states going back and forth, uh, just to give you an idea. But eventually Arezzo is going to uh, to lose to Florence. And I will uh, post some photos of Arezzo, of me in Arezzo, maybe, on our Facebook page, if I remember. Uh, oh, side note, Augustus's advisor, uh, Massinus, was, was born in Arezzo. His family held lands there during his birth, so he's one of the famous sons of Arezzo. Wow, yeah. there you go. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, so um, after uh, Petrarco, the father, uh went to Arezzo. Petrarch was born there. Um, There was no work there really for him. So he got permission for his wife and son to move closer to Florence and to Inchisa. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so Petrarco went looking for work basically. And Mm -hmm. around about 1311, he did a number of different things, but about 1311, he ends up in Avignon uh, where he got employment in sort of the papal court. There. They're always looking for notaries in the papal right. court. Sure. And so uh, that's where he went to get work. Of course, he's a Guelph. Uh, 
Right. Um, and, and the Guelphs had oh, been pro-Pope. Yeah. They said, are you a white Guelph or a black Guelph? And he went, oh, I'm black just... all the way, baby. Once you go black, Guelph, you don't go back, Guelph. And uh, love the Pope. Love yeah. me a good Pope. Yeah. So now, so I just wanted to add real quick. So he just moved. He uh, followed Pope Clement V, who started the Avignon Papacy. And again, he took advantage of the fact that he was a Guelph to get in good looking for work. I just wanted to throw that in. And why did Clement V start the Avignon Papacy, Ray? Um, I think he preferred it to Rome, but I don't know. Mm, a little bit of backstory um, I wanted to tell here because this cool. is a good story. So remember how I said earlier that um, Pope Stephen or Stephen um, did this deal with Pepin, right. Pepin the midget. Um, they said you can't call him that. Uh, no. What do we call it? It's just it's not politically correct. And they said oh, we'll just call him the, the tiny, the the little Pepin the little. Let's just go with short. Right? Yeah, like let's not. He's not. He's not a fucking leprechaun. Let's just say. Yeah, he's... Well, we're not saying leprechaun. We're just calling it like we see it. His original name, Pep and the Lep. <laughs> Pep the Lep. They call him <laughs> Peppy the Leppy. That's a bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah. Um, I said it caused problems. So uh, th- this kind of came to a head um, in 1303, Ooh. the year before Petrarch was born. Right. When. Pope Boniface VIII mm-hmm. was arrested you can't. by King uh-huh. Philip IV of France right. uh, over taxation. Basically, Philip is running all these wars. He goes, I need money. I'm going to tax the church, motherfuckers, because these, these fuckers yeah. have got money. I'm going to tax the church. Uh, so he starts taxing the church in France, the clergy and, and the bishops and all these sorts of guys. Going to hell. And Pope 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 Boniface goes, fuck you, and excommunicated him. Um, and uh, Pope Boniface issued a papal bull, uh, basically saying popes are the boss of kings. So oh. you shut the fuck up. You, I, I make or break emperors, bitch. Right. I made you an emperor. I can unmake you an emperor. And I sure as um, don't pay no taxes. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Philip didn't like that. So he had Boniface arrested and tortured. What? But then he released him a few days later. Do you say he was sorry? But uh-huh. then Boniface died well, yeah. from <laughs> maybe maybe his injuries. No maybe? one can tell for sure. Maybe. Maybe he slipped um, and fell. Yeah. Yeah. Now, his successor, Pope Benedict the Ninth, mm-hmm. uh, only lasted eight months before he also died. Oh, shit. Probably poisoned. Sure. And then, so then the cardinals all went to a conclave, which is how they elect a pope. Mm-hmm. It was deadlocked, and Philip, King Philip the Fourth, was able to uh, 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 undeadlock the conclave <laughs> and got one of his one of his homies, right, um, a Frenchman, elected pope, Clement the Fifth ah, in thirteen oh five. Gotcha. Now he said, Clement. Uh, fuck Clem? this Rome business. I, right. I want to keep an eye on you, Clemmy. Yeah. Right. So let <clears throat> let's just move the papal court to wow. France, where I can keep an eye on it. Wow. So Clement moved the papal court to Avignon. Now we we've seen you know remember when the Roman emperors 
said, yeah, Rome, not not big, not a big fan of Rome anymore. It was good in its day. Yeah. Then they moved it, I think, to Milan first and then to Ravenna. And, of right. course, Constantine set it up in uh, Byzantium. Uh, so now the popes are doing the same thing. You know what, Rome, that's just not what it used to be. Pack up and let's go. Yeah. So they moved to Avignon in France where it remained for 67 years. Wow. Now, Clement uh, is also best remembered. He's remembered for two things, <laughs> moving the papal court to Avignon, sometimes referred to as the Avignon papacy or the Babylonian captivity. Right. Because they thought um, France was, uh, you know, the work of the devil sure. and it was Babylon. Isn't it? Um yeah, pretty well, but yeah, pretty much. The yeah. drivers are. I can tell you that right yeah. now. Yeah, we don't. We don't really like you. You know, you, we okay. We need tourism, but seriously, like fuck you. We are French. Um, Clement is also remembered for uh, suppressing the Knights Templar, mm. um, which would be a great story to tell at some point. But yeah, the Knights Templar had sort of built themselves into this. They, they were basically a bunch of Christian mercenaries. I think they started. Uh, protecting the roads of Christendom right. from thieves and, and robbers and that kind of stuff, Other they ended thieves. up becoming right. Uh, ended up becoming incredibly rich, incredibly powerful. And uh, Philip, King Philip, was like, you know what? Uh, I want that. I want their money. <laughs> and so he did a deal with Clement, and oh. um, Clement. Yeah, they basically had the Knights Templar all killed. Wow. And took took all this shit. Wow. Anyway, um, so fast forward uh, to 1316. Mm-hmm. Petrarco sends Petrarch and his brother Gerardo, right. who came along later, sends them off to study law at the University of Montpellier. It's the family business, and he goes, yeah. "You know what? You're gonna you're gonna become lawyers." What did Petrarch think of that plan? Yeah. Well, uh, as far as the University of Montpellier or Pilier, uh, he was there from 1360 to 1320. Then he goes to Bologna, uh, 1320 to 1323. Now, Bologna should have pleased Petrarch more than it did. It was a university town. Learning is the passion. There's a bunch of young people to talk to. And it actually was the first time that a university was giving courses in human anatomy. So that was that was pretty uh, uh, avant-garde. And there was also a female professor who supposedly, I'm sure this wow. is not true, yeah, who was so fucking smoking hot, she had to lecture behind a veil because her hotness would have distracted the students. But if you're 16 or 17, you're going to be distracted by anything. But the point is, it should have meant more to him, <clears throat> but it didn't. Because, as we're going to see later, while at Bologna, politics reared its ugly head. The, and this is a little backstory. The, 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 the community there, Bologna, had won its control back from the Holy Roman Emperor back in 1153. And since then, they had been picking their own Podesta, their own city manager. So they kind of had a democracy for two centuries. But in 1325, while Petrarch was there, Bologna city forces were defeated by Modena, a, a nearby town. And so the city of Bologna put itself under the protection of the papacy. So in the, in the future, this is going to get Bologna in a whole bunch of trouble as it as it aligns with the papacy. But the point is, there's this infighting, there's this war. It, they can't just be calm and get along. So this does affect his learning. It does scare him to see war up close and personal. Um, but even at a young age, and I'm not sure if we've, we've touched on this in the past, but even at a young age, Petrarch was interested in writing and Latin literature. So he did 
didn't really think much of his studies, and he even said of the law, it went against my bent, painfully, to acquire an art that I would not practice dishonestly, and could hardly hope to practice otherwise. So he did not think very much of this. The only the only excitement he got about doing his studies was that when he led legal treatises, he was able to read references back to Roman antiquity. Uh, and he and during his schoolwork, which he did the absolute minimum, instead he spent all of his time reading as much Virgil, Cicero, and Seneca as he could find. And as we've said in previous episodes, there wasn't that much. There would be a lot more in the future, but everything he could get about the late Roman Empire, he just consumed it because he found their Latin so pure and so beautiful and so moving all at the same time. Yeah, and he he got into Cicero uh, from a very early age, uh, thanks to his father, who Mm. had a collection of uh, a little bit of Cicero, a little bit of Virgil. Nice. And um, Petrarch later said, at the time, I could not understand what I read, but the sweetness of the language and majesty of the cadences enchanted me so that whatever else I read sounded harsh in my ears and quite discordant. Yeah. So it's, and this is one of the interesting things we'll see about some of these early humanists. Um, It's not necessarily the ideas in the ancient writings mm-hmm. that they are enamored with it's the quality of the language um the quality of the writing the the the, the um the quality of the prose i guess that they they fall in love with mm-hmm. it's only over time that some some of them start to go actually these ideas are pretty interesting you know like it's like it's like somebody who just listens to the music it's like my wife There'll be songs, and I'll say to Chrissy, "Do you know what this song's actually about?" She goes, "No, nah, I never listen to the lyrics. I'm just yep. listening to the music." You know, right. like now, well, you, you know, me, I'm the opposite. I'm always listening to the lyrics. Yeah, the I want to, I want to understand the song. Yeah, right. I want to. What, what is this song about? These people were listening to the the, the music mm-hmm. of Cicero. Uh, sometimes as much, if not more, than the actual ideas. But Petrarch, you know, he was he was a bit of both. But initially, it was the music of Cicero's Latin that attracted him as a young man. Um, But his father had fallen on hard times, Uh, a bit hard. He got kicked out of Florence, had a good job. He's rebuilding himself uh, in Avignon over Mm -hmm. these years, got to make new contacts, new networks. So he's pushing Petrarch to give up on wasting his time with Virgil and Cicero and to dedicate himself to making a career as a lawyer. One day he found, he'd said to him, it's a bit like, uh, like a parent today with kids' video games. And you go, you got to stop playing video games. You're all right, I got no video game. Oh, yeah, all right. You take all their video games away, and then you you get you go in. You're cleaning their room up one day, looking for weed and porn. Right. Um, not to take it away, just so you can have <laughs> right. it. You're oh, like, yeah. I'm it's horny and I want to get high. Yeah. Bet you my bet you my teenage son has got some hidden it's somewhere. I'm going to go find pot. it, and take yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't <laughs> smoke weed and watch porn. <laughs> Give it to me. I'm going to throw Boy, this I'm going to burn it. at some juncture. Yeah. Um, so his father did that but found a hidden stash of Cicero. Oh. He wished he'd and, born. And threw it all into the fire. Son of a bitch. Now, before we keep going with that story, um, I want to talk about the fact that people in – 
Petrarch's time in the early 1300s actually were reading Cicero. They still had Cicero. Mm-hmm. Why did they have Cicero in the first place, Ray? I thought, you know, all of this stuff yeah. had disappeared. Well, from what, what I know, that the, and we said this on a previous show, some people did, through the Middle Ages, did appreciate the beauty, the wisdom, whatever you want to call it, of people like Cicero. And some of it was kept um, that, that certainly didn't offend the church too much. So there were people making copies of it. It was around, but some of it had been mislaid or lost or whatever. So it's still there. But as far as I know, there were people even for the last 500 years or whatever, a thousand years, that are still appreciating the work of this man. I think that's true. But the other reason, uh, one of the main reasons is that they had Cicero and bits of Virgil and Ovid is because there was so much of it. Mm. Like these guys were so famous in that sort of late, uh, well, right through the, the those first couple of centuries uh, uh, CE, mm-hmm. that everyone had a copy of this. There were thousands and thousands and thousands oh. of copies of their writing um, scattered throughout the Roman Empire. So some of it survived and some of it was copied. I mean, Cicero, as we know, because we talked about him endlessly in our JC series, Cicero was hugely famous in his lifetime and and because of the quality of his Latin during his lifetime. Yeah. And so for years afterwards, uh, after he was sort of, uh, his reputation was... um, what what would we call it? Re uh, re sanctified by Augustus. Obviously, after the the triumvirate had him killed, right. mostly Marcus Antonius had him killed, and then uh, after Augustus then had Marcus Antonius killed, he went. <laughs> you know, Cicero. I he was, I, I, yeah, he was okay. Yeah, now I, I actually dead, like that s- okay. silly old guy. Right. He apologized to Cicero's son and. Oh, and, and he was re- rehabilitated is the word I'm looking for. Rarely Cicero's enough. reputation was rehabilitated. Um, well, people, there was a, a magnet of Fidel Castro just fell down. I hope, shit, it's I hope that's son. not an omen. Maybe he's dead. Um, <laughs> somebody visiting, check the news. He's visiting you. Um, there was, uh, where was I going with that? Yeah, so... There was he was very very famous for his Latin and mm. as well as his ideas the quality of his Latin, and so anyone who was anyone in the Roman Empire for the next few hundred years, next five hundred years, wanted their own copy of the collected works of Cicero, to, so they could enjoy it and they could read it to their children and for their children to study how to write good Latin, right. and that and that continued right through the Middle Ages because people still. Um, wrote Latin. Latin mm-hmm. was the lingua franca of the civilized world right through the Christian era. And the way that you learnt to write really good Latin was by studying Cicero. All right. Um, are you going to continue? Because I was going to go back and answer the question that you asked 10 minutes ago, but I didn't want to cut you off. Uh, yes, I'm going to continue. I don't know what question we're even talking about. Well, um, then you go and continue. An so we've got to wrap it up. But yeah. Uh, I want to keep it. So um, Cicero also wrote a lot of shit during his lifetime. Right. Like unlike Virgil or Ovid, where we, yeah, they had a, they had the major works, 
Um, Cicero, as we know, he wrote like 20, 30 books um, on philosophy and on civil life and on uh, um, you know how to be a good uh, Roman right. and and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters, which were all collected. Now it didn't hurt that the, his best friend was Atticus, right? Uh, who he was writing lots of letters to, as we talked about um, on back in the JC days. Um, uh, Atticus was basically a publisher in Greece. So Atticus was uh, taking all of it. Atticus ah. had rooms full of slaves whose only job was making copies of Cicero's what? letters and turning them into books that Atticus could then sell and make money from. Nice. And um, when Cicero died, his, uh, his slave that he gave his freedom to... Right. Oh, um, the shorthand guy. But go ahead. I can't yeah, yeah. Um, Toto, oh. I think, was his name. Let's go with that. Yeah. Um, also collected all of the Cicero stuff that he could. And he, his job was basically to make copies of Cicero's letters at the time, as well as to write down his stuff. He made copies and got them to Atticus, and these were published. So um, a, as of this day, like 2018, Ray, mm-hmm. what percentage of written works – from Cicero's lifetime that have survived, do you think are actually written by Cicero himself? Oh. <laughs> of all of the Latin right. writings from that late first century BCE right. are actually written by Cicero himself that have survived to this very day. Do you mean not forgeries? Yes, right, okay. not forgeries. Okay, okay. Um, I've... Twenty-five percent. I have no idea. Try seventy-five percent. Wow, that's impressive. Seventy-five percent of the books that we have that come from the first century BCE that have survived were mm-hmm. written by Cicero. That's impressive. Somebody worked hard. There was a conspiracy to keep this guy's writings existing. As I said, like th- that's how people learnt Latin. Right. They learned it from studying Cicero's use of Latin, so that's wow. why it survived. So anyway, back to Petrarco throwing mm. books into the fire. Yeah. A book burning, if you will. So Petrarch says he screamed so loudly when his father threw his books into the fire that his father reached in and pulled two out oh. that had been barely scorched. One was Virgil's Aeneid. And the other was a copy of right. Cicero's On Rhetoric. And he told his son mm-hmm. that he could read Virgil when he had a spare yeah. hour to kill outside of his studies and to read Cicero's On Rhetoric to help him in his career career as a lawyer, which is what Petrarch studied for the next seven years, although, as you said, he considered it a waste of time and energy. And then when he was about 22, his father Died and then his mother died a few weeks later. Yeah, so it's 1326, they're dead. He quits school. He and his brother Gerardo go back to Avignon. He gets a couple of jobs as a cleric in an office. Um, But another reason for him not to like the law very much, uh, he's going to find out that his guardians, through legal manipulation, are able to take his inheritance in Florence. So, again, he has a very negative view of the law. He sees the legal system as nothing more than the art of selling justice. He's going to focus on classical poetry and young love. (laughs) 
All he got from his father's estate, he said, was a single book by Cicero. He wrote, a volume of Cicero so exquisite that you could hardly find its equal, which my father used to cherish as his darling treasure, and which escaped the hands of his executors, not because they wished to save it for me, but because they were busy plundering what they considered the more valuable portions of my inheritance. Cuts. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. a few years later, he loaned this copy of Cicero, along with another book by Cicero, De Gloria, or On Glory, which Petrarch had himself borrowed from someone else. He loaned both of these to one of his old teachers that he was fond of from the Avignon days. This teacher said he wanted to borrow them so he could write a commentary on them. Right. Bullshit. Uh, Petrarch said, yeah, good good stuff, fair enough. <laughs> Loaned it to him. Yeah, a year later, he's going, those uh, Ciceros, can, uh, how are you going with that? Oh, yeah, still working hard. <laughs> you, you go, all right, all right. A year later, he goes, uh, <laughs> you done? Uh, he just turned up at this guy's house one day and said, where are those Ciceros? I just want to have a look at something. And he goes, oh, yeah, I sold them oh, for cash. Right. Because um, he was hard up. Yeah. And Petrarch said, Oh, you cunt. Just tell me where they are, <laughs> who you sold them to, and I'll go and buy them back. And his old teacher said, oh, no, 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 it's a good, no, it's fine. <laughs> don't, I'll, don't. I'm, I'm very embarrassed by this. I will go and buy them back. Trust me. Right. You can trust me. Yeah. Well, you, you, you trust me? He goes, well, <laughs> not really, but okay. Um, and the teacher ran away, got out of Dodge. Oh, God. Um, and then died. And um, so Petrarch never found out who his teacher had sold these books by Cicero to. And here's the thing. That copy of De Gloria, Uh Cicero's De Gloria, it was the last one in existence. Oh, fuck. Anywhere. It's gone. It was written in 44 BCE. One of Cicero's last works was written the year before his murder. Right. And the last copy of it, disappeared it has never been seen since motherfucker another loss another and with loss. that yeah. with that with that yeah. we're going to get out and um but we'll be back promise with more of petrarch so when we come back next week petrarch he's going full young love and full poetry <laughs> he's going to invent yeah the modern world he's going to invent the love poem oh 